up on today's show, pipeline problems. A couple of them. Will Line 5 continue to operate into central Canada and the U.S.? What happens if not? And hackers expose the drastic impact they can have by shutting down a key pipeline in the United States. And with all the talk about AstraZeneca, what happens now, especially if you've had AstraZeneca for your first dose? Late last year, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer set her sights on Enbridge's Line 5. It's a pipeline that carries more than half a million barrels of Canadian fossil fuels through her state and into Sarnia, Ontario, ultimately. It passes under a waterway between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan, and Whitmer's concern is that line will leak and cause catastrophic damage to the water system. The line has been operational for decades, seven of them. It's never leaked into the water, and Enbridge has been working on plans to make sure that it never does, with some rerouting, some upgrading, things like that. But no change in stance from Whitmer. She wants it shut down. She wants it shut down today. May 12th is the deadline she set for this to happen. Enbridge says, no, we're not doing it, not until we have a court order. So that's where we stand. What does it mean? Warren Maybe is director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University, and Warren joins us now to talk a bit about this situation. Now, Warren, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So today is the deadline day, and as I say, Enbridge has said, yeah, we're not going to do this until we get a quarter. So we should not be expecting to see this pipeline shut down today, right? No, uh, unless the courts were to suddenly come out and say something, and they're not you know, expected to do so, uh, we're not going to see the pipeline shut down today. But you know, this is the day that the governor wanted to see it shut down, right. and there's a lot of people, you know, kind of sitting on the edge of their seats waiting to see if something does happen. Yeah, and the legal wrangling continues. There's supposed to be a mediator meeting with the two sides uh, next week, right? Uh, the, the federal government firing an amicus brief, so there's a lot of legal wrangling underway. That's right. Uh, we're starting to see uh, our federal government getting more involved. That, you know, popped up yesterday with that amicus brief that you're talking about. Uh, you know, this is uh, raising the bar because the, essentially the Canadian government is saying, you know, remember, we work together on right. these things. Uh, we have treaties in place that govern the exchange of energy products between our countries. Uh, you can't just step in and, and shut these things down. Yeah, arbitrarily, yeah. Now, um, let's talk about the implications if this were to be shut down. We know uh, it's predicted to be uh, really, really devastating for large parts of central Canada, even parts of the United States. What exactly would the fallout be if Line 5 were to go down? So <clears throat> right now, uh, a little bit more than half of the oil that gets processed and used in Ontario comes through Line 5, and something like two-thirds of the oil that is being used or processed uh, in Quebec comes through Line 5. So you can imagine that if you take half or more than half uh, of your product out of the system that immediately you're going to see some price signals. Yep. Uh, there's going to be a, a rise in price at the pumps. Um, and we knew that that was going to happen even before the cybersecurity hack right. on the Colonial <laughs> Pipeline <laughs> south of the border, which is already starting to impact prices up here in Canada. So we would expect to see uh, a jump in price. We would expect to see uh, scrambling from the companies, uh, Suncor and others who are refining this material, uh, big demand on rail systems and on marine to start moving oil in different directions. Uh, it's going to be a, a huge 
disruption to the economy in this part of the world, for sure. Now, Enbridge is saying, yeah, okay, you can replace maybe 10% of it by rail, maybe, um, and trucking, who knows how much, which, of course, leads to the whole greenhouse gas emissions discussion. But the fact is, trying to replace this by other means is not going to be easy. It's not like you can simply switch it over. No, it's the only thing that could kind of get you there would be some kind of a marine or uh, boat option. And, you know, the Line 5 does kind of originate close to the lakehead uh, uh, on Lake Superior. Mm. You could imagine a scenario in the longer term where you're moving things by barge or by ship uh, from there to Sarnia. That's much more costly. I think it's actually much more risky. Right, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to keep the oil away from the Great Lakes, putting a bunch of boats full of oil into the Great Lakes doesn't seem to be a solution. Exactly. It's not really where we'd want to get to. And I suspect that the long-term solution, if if this were to happen, like let's just hypothesize, uh, you lose Line 5, the long-term solution probably would be to reverse Line 9, which runs through Ontario uh, from Sarnia into Quebec, uh, and to start bringing in oil uh, through the Atlantic, from wherever, Venezuela, or from Saudi Arabia, or from the North Sea, right. you know. And that's not optional, or optional, ideal, either. No, <laughs> exactly. not the best way to go. Now, we, as I said, she made this announcement back in November. Have we seen sort of disaster preparedness exercises underway here? I mean, are people stockpiling fuel? We know airports would be heavily impacted by this as well. So, you know, could they sustain this for a little while and possibly move into another thing, or would this cause an immediate impact? I think that there's some uh, given the system. So, you know, we've had weeks where the pipeline has been shut down for inspection, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there was uh, an incident uh, at the Straits of Mackinac, which is kind of that critical environmental point uh, a couple of years back. There's been some inspections. Um, so it is possible to shut it down, and there are storage buffers along the system that can be utilized to keep everything running. A few days here and there is doable. You know, it's, yeah, it's manageable. Yeah. What becomes problematic is when it's extended for weeks or months, because then you're in a situation where the refineries would run dry. Um, these are, you know, incredibly expensive pieces of infrastructure. There's a lot of jobs, thousands of jobs in, in Ontario at stake uh, around this. There's jobs in the U.S. at stake around this sure. as well. Uh, so we haven't seen people, you know, stockpiling massive amounts of fuel. I, I actually think a lot of people assumed it would never get to this point, you know, that this was kind of posturing, political posturing, yes. and that we would never get to the point where uh, we, we approach deadlines and we're in the courts mediating this. Warren, there's a, there's a large sentiment in Alberta from people who are saying, you know what, good, shut it down. We need to have a course correction in eastern Canada. They need to have a better understanding of how this whole industry works, how reliant they are on it, how important pipelines are to them personally, and maybe... This will cause a change in thinking in central Canada where instead of being anti-pipeline and blocking what Alberta is trying to do, they'll say, okay, maybe they have a point here. Is that possible? I mean, is this an opportunity? I guess it is possible. I mean, it's not the option that I would choose. I I think that anything that's going to be this disruptive uh, to the economies of Alberta and Ontario and Quebec uh, should be avoided if we can. You know, and I, I think that 
the kind of knee-jerk thinking that, oh, yes, you know, this should be shut down and, and people will learn a good lesson, uh, it never really works the way that you want it to work. Uh, the lesson that people take away from it might be that we are too dependent on pipelines right. and we must move in a different direction. Uh, there's a transition happening in the world for sure. Yes, and, no, no. and that transition needs to be managed carefully. But, you know, the danger of this transition, if you do it too quickly, if you try to just make an abrupt course change, you're going to leave a lot of people behind, leave a lot of people hurting. And we don't want that. <laughs> we want to manage this change. And that's what we really need to figure out. And that's that's sort of, I mean, we're talking about the extreme of fine, shut it down, or you need to shut it down. Those are the two ends of the spectrum. And as you say, somewhere in the middle is sort of like, okay, well, there is a transition going, but you can't, you know, we, we have the people who say, leave it in the ground. We have people who say, shut down the pipelines now. Maybe this is at least moves the needle a bit to, okay, we can work on the transition, but at the same time, we are still dependent on these products. At this point, we are very dependent on this product, and we need uh, to maintain them in order to maintain the economy that we have. Right. Uh, I'm in the camp that firmly believes that, you know, we have to make a transition. We need to plan that out, uh, but that the abrupt changes that we're talking about would be too damaging. It right. would actually take away our ability to be able to make the sustainable decisions that we need to make, because... Uh, what will happen is that we will scramble, we'll find another source. Uh, it may be sources that are coming from uh, regimes that we don't agree with, you know, mm -hmm. where there are human rights right. issues yep. or others. Uh, there may be uh, greater greenhouse gas footprints, almost certainly, if you're bringing it overseas rather than taking it uh, from, you know, our own resources. We do need to plan, and there needs to be a dialogue about this, the right way to do it is not to just shut things down and sort of see where the chips fall. Right, exactly. Have a bit of a plan in place. Uh, Warren, great insight. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We want to talk uh, about the situation that's going on in the United States right now. There's a cyber attack and extortion attempt targeting Colonial Pipeline in the United States. It is being called the worst attack on U.S. infrastructure ever according to some of the experts. Hackers infiltrated the system late last week, and the Georgia-based pipeline company just shut down its entire network on Friday in response and shut down the pipeline as a result. So 2.5 million barrels of diesel, gas, and jet fuel are not making their way to the eastern seaboard right now. 45% of the East Coast supply... There's gas shortages, there's spikes in prices uh, that are expected to continue if this carries on. Uh, in fact, dozens of service stations are out of gas right now, more running out all the time. Officials have come forward and said, hey, please don't run out and stock up on fuel. We're seeing some localized price jumps already going on. So it all leads to the larger question, how, how does this happen? And given that situation there... What do we need to protect against here? Chester Wisnowski is the principal research scientist at the cybersecurity firm Sophos, and he joins us now to talk about this situation. Chester, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Now, what we're talking about here is one of these ransomware attacks, right? We've heard of these before. Just uh, describe the situation. What is a ransomware attack? What have these hackers done to this pipeline company? Well, in essence, they, you know, they break into your computers and servers. They identify the most uh, sensitive assets for your, your business. Uh, first, they steal them. 
so that they've got a copy of everything that they can extort you with. And then after that, they lock them up with encryption so that you can't access any of your systems either until you pay a ransom. So basically, they take over your entire computer operation and say, unless you give us X amount of dollars, we have control of your operations. Yeah, in essence, they have the keys, literally. Uh, They have the encryption keys, but, I mean, you could think of it just like having the the keys to a physical building, right? They've locked it down. You're not coming in. You're not doing anything until you pay us for the keys. And if you don't want to pay us for the keys, we're going to slowly start leaking all of your private information onto the public Internet, including maybe the HR data on all your staff members and all of your contracts information and your pricing that you're charging people, say, in this case, for transit through our pipelines. Unbelievable. And now this is not new. We've we've covered these for years now. I mean, they've targeted hospitals, all kinds of different things, schools. Um, why can we not stop these? Well, <laughs> I think we can. It's just difficult. And uh, I don't know that the awareness level is high enough amongst these organizations to understand how big of a risk this is to the average business. We hear about these things typically in the news when they're a giant company, right? Uh, A few years ago, there was one of these attacks that hit Federal Express and a bunch of other giant, you know, shipping companies and things, and it made headlines. So I think a lot of mid and small businesses don't understand that the risk to their business is equally as high, right? Because we're only hearing about it in the news when it's some brand name that we all know. And the truth of the matter is this is hitting thousands of small and mid-sized businesses around the world every single week. Do we know who's behind um, most of them or this incident at least? Well, sort of. Uh, there's there's several groups that operate, and they, they actually operate in sort of a, um, a software-as-a-service model. So if, if you work in technology at all, you may be aware most of us buy software-as-a-service now. Like, we don't buy Microsoft Office. We pay for Office 365 on a subscription, and we just use it through the cloud. Yeah. And the, the criminals are actually operating on that same business model. So um, there's quite a few more of them than we can necessarily track, and that literally some bad guy writes the software that enables this type of lockup, and then other people buy it from him, uh, or her, I should say, but uh, they buy it from them uh, to use themselves to actually attack people, and then they split the profits. And so this group is called DarkSide, and it's believed that their their business model typically is that uh, the criminal who's actually attacked the, the pipeline in this case will get 25% of the ransom, and the people who are uh, operating the service get 75% of the ransom. Uh, so it's sort of, a, of an interesting business model, but I mean, there's there's dozens of these groups doing this, and each of those have these sort of affiliates that are working with them. So there's probably a few hundred people behind these attacks in general. Wow. Now, when something like this happens, and we're, we're talking about a major infrastructure installation here. So when a company is targeted like this, let, let's talk about Colonial specifically. What's happening there right now? What's been happening since this breach took place last week? Well, I don't have inside information, but the way these play out typically is the first two days, you bring in experts, which Colonial did. They brought in a company called FireEye, which is uh, one of the the best, you know, known to be one of the best companies at responding to these incidents. And they probably on day one and day two on Friday and Saturday we're just ensuring that they could lock the criminals out of their system so they can't cause any further damage, right? You're worried that you, if you upset the criminals, they could try to destroy things, right. cause harm. And in case, of course, of a pipeline, you, you might be worried about the physical safety of the pipeline itself, which is probably why they shut it down. Um, and after that first two days, then you're in the phase of assessing, uh, you know, what, what kind of damage have they done and can you recover your business without, in fact, paying that ransom? Uh, none of us want to send a few million dollars to yeah. a, a criminal. Um, but, you know, you've got to assess uh, for your organization what information they've stolen, how much damage they've caused, what they had access to, and start to, um, start your recovery efforts. And that may be restoring all of your systems from backups, 
but it also might include them contemplating paying the ransom. It's really hard to tell, but with, I suspect they're not just because when the President of the United States is concerned with what you're doing, it's yeah. probably a pretty bad luck to pay a ransom. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long does it typically take to resolve these situations? Do these hackers put a timeline in and say you have 48 hours or a week? Or, I mean, is the clock ticking as soon as they breach it? Uh, to a degree, yeah. I mean, usually uh, they they threaten to double the amount of ransom if you don't pay it within a certain amount of time. Uh, I, I believe in, in previous cases with this group, we've seen it's about one week. Okay. So they give you a week and then they double the cost. Uh, the other factor you have to consider is usually after about two weeks is when, if you haven't paid, they start publishing all of your data publicly on the on the dark web. Uh, so this one's an anomaly a little bit, because I think the criminals got a little shook by the amount of attention this has gotten, and they may be worried about a drone dropping a missile down their chimney or something. Yeah. So they seem to be backing off a little bit. So it's possible they'd be a little less aggressive, just because I think they're, they're fearing the Department of Homeland Security's wrath. Well, they elevate it to this level. When we're talking about a massive in- infrastructure installation, the, the automated reaction from a lot of people as well, if they can do it here, can they do it to the electrical grid or can they do it, you know, to this or that? So obviously it's, it's entered a new realm when you're talking about, you know, the most um, invasive infrastructure attack, as some people are calling it in the United States. So it has reached a new level with this, has it not? Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, um, we've seen a lot of other uh, pretty big disruptions in this area as well, but but none of them had national security implications, right? Yeah. So once you get to the national security implication level, now we've got everyone's attention. And, and it's a little disappointing, to be fair, as an expert working in this field for a very long time, that... Um, we wanted this attention 10 years ago so we could prevent this. Right, right. <laughs> and, and nobody was listening until this happened, and now all of a sudden everybody's listening, which is it's great that we've got everyone's attention, but unfortunately this is not the way we wanted it to play out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, there's a little bit of a differentiation between the electrical grid and the other critical infrastructure, and this is true in both the United States and Canada, which is to say the power grid itself is more heavily regulated um, than the, say, gas pipelines, water filtration systems, and other critical structure. So we are certainly equally vulnerable to this happening at just about any of these other private operators. Um, none of them have particularly good security uh, posture, as we call it. Um, but the grid itself is tested more thoroughly and has more government intervention involved in regulating it. So it's probably a bit safer and we shouldn't panic about somebody turning the lights off tomorrow for ransom. That's good to hear. That's reassuring. Um, When we talk about, you know, Department of Homeland Security being dragged in, as you say, um, you know, governments being more involved in this sort of thing, could it change the way that this is approached now? Is it, has it sort of been the businesses are on their own and now governments realize that just, how bad this can get and there'll be more government involvement that could perhaps stem this tide a little bit? Yeah, I think um, there's certainly going to, I mean, my fear and my hope is that that the government gets involved. I mean, it's one of these things where if we pass legislation in the U.S. Congress in a panic, it's likely to be poor legislation. Right. Um, And so we don't want to see that, but we certainly would like to be able to see a more active role. In the United States, uh, they have a group called CISA, which is the uh, um, Infrastructure Security Agency as part of the Department of Homeland Security, Computer Infrastructure Security Agency. And they've got some really great people. They're actually staffed well. They're, they're, they're really on the ball. The problem, of course, is we can't dictate to private enterprises what they must do. Right. So we've got to figure out what this balance is. What is this, what is this line? Um, you know, everybody 
used to quote that Ronald Reagan line that, you know, the, the most terrifying words that you, you ever heard, heard were, I'm here from the government, I'm here to help. <laughs> um, and you know, nobody wants private companies being told how to run their business and what they, you know, uh, how to run their computer networks. But on the other hand, these businesses don't have the experts that uh, clearly have um, um, under-assessed the risk in this yeah. case. And uh, there's been some information uh, that I got yesterday from the New York Times that suggests, you know, these guys were really far behind on the way that they had their systems um, facing the internet uh, that were unprotected. And so that's not something that should be happening in critical infrastructure. But right now, critical infrastructure companies have no different laws or rules than than any other company, right? And FedEx, like you said. Yeah, well, yeah, and and you know, there's plenty of victims in Canada. Unfortunately, um, I obviously for confidentiality, can't name them. But you know, I, I've been working with you know factories in Manitoba and Saskatchewan and and paper mills here in BC that have been hit with these kinds of attacks and uh, very similar problems uh, with the way they had their security set up. And so, uh, I think we're going to see possibly regulation specifically yeah. for for critical infrastructure going. You know, you play a different role in our ecosystem yep. than other businesses, and so we're going to you know do some testing and if you can't meet our standards it's going to be fine and you need to be able to pass these tests at a minimum to know that you're doing the 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 you know the, you need to be at least in the middle of the pack or a little ahead of yeah, it exactly um if you're putting people's lives at risk potentially makes perfect sense so maybe we'll see some good come out of this but uh wow what a mess yeah Okay. I mean, I, I hope that raises awareness that for if your business, if you're responsible for a business out there, these attacks are hitting everything from small businesses, you know, 20, 25 people, all the way on up to these big things. And um, you should be working with your computer experts to be sure that you're prepared. And, and if you need to ask for uh, outside help, there's a lot of organizations that can work with you to provide that as a service to, to help monitor your system to be sure it doesn't happen to you. Yeah, I think it'll ramp up awareness for sure. Chester, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Thank you, sir. That is Chester Wisniewski, who is a principal research scientist at the cybersecurity firm Sophos. A lot of texts coming in yesterday, especially, and even today in terms of, okay, what's going on with these vaccines? Now we're not doing AstraZeneca, so what does that mean? I've already got AstraZeneca. What's going to happen? Are we going to get everybody vaccinated? On and on. Well, here's the update. Alberta's vaccination campaign is going great guns. As of yesterday, almost 2 million doses had been administered. We'll likely hit 2 million at some point today. Uh, Almost 200,000 people signed up in one day this week to get their shots. The Premier is now announcing that half of the province should have been given their first dose by the first week of June, and a third of the province by the third week in June. To put it in perspective, it took Alberta 119 days to reach our first 1 million doses administered. And if we stay on target for tomorrow, it will have taken only 29 days to reach the second million. This is a big milestone for our province, and I want to thank every Albertan who's done their part. So there you go. We're, we're, we're getting her done. Uh, we're actually uh, right at the top of the country in terms of how many people per 100 uh, have been vaccinated. Our percentage is creeping up. We're doing really, really great things there. Um, but a lot of people very concerned with the announcement yesterday that uh, the province is no longer using AstraZeneca use for first-dose vaccinations in Alberta. Now, we should point out it's not like they had a choice. As of yesterday, there's a grand total of about 8,000 doses of AstraZeneca remaining in Alberta. Meanwhile, um, 
200,000 signing up for a dose yesterday alone? We, we can't. We, we don't have the supply of AstraZeneca to do first doses, and we aren't sure when we may get more. We're seeing a steady and increasing supply of Pfizer and Moderna. So it's not so much a decision from the province, but just an outlining of the reality. We don't have AstraZeneca left, so no more first doses. Of course, makes sense. But, and, and this is the fly in the ointment here, more than a quarter of a million Albertans already got AstraZeneca for their first dose. So, so where does that leave us? those of us who have one dose of AstraZeneca as we sit and wait for our second dose. Let's get some uh, analysis around the mixing of vaccines or the switching of vaccines. We're going to chat now with Dr. Christopher Labos, who is a cardiologist and epidemiologist in Montreal, also an associate uh, at McGill University. Doctor, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure for being here. Now, we should first of all point out that we're not doing this um, because it's something we want to try. We're doing this because we have to, right? The AstraZeneca situation in Canada is we're just not getting them anymore. Right, that's exactly right. The doses of AstraZeneca, of the AstraZeneca vaccine, were actually being manufactured in India, but those doses are now being redirected for India's domestic use yeah. uh, because of the worsening situation there. We're going to get some doses from the U.S. stockpile, but the supply of AstraZeneca is going to be much reduced going forward. So, yes... As you said, a lot of this is really just reflecting reality. The other sort of issue, though, as we vaccinate younger and younger age groups, remember, these are age groups in whom the AstraZeneca vaccine is not indicated anyway. So even if there was AstraZeneca, many of the people who are going to be vaccinated going forward wouldn't even be eligible if the vaccine was available to us. Okay, so we're seeing all the Pfizer uh, specifically. We're getting millions of doses of Pfizer every week. We're also getting some Moderna doses. So it makes sense to pivot to first doses on that. Um, The question, though, is if you are one of the many, many Canadians who received AstraZeneca as your first dose, as I said, about a quarter of a million in Alberta alone, the question now is, okay, well, what about my second dose? Do we know, um, is it likely that we won't have AstraZeneca when it comes time for people to be um, do their second shot? Well, that's a little bit unclear. Uh, a lot is going to depend on how much comes from the U.S. stockpile. A lot's going to depend on what happens in India. Do they start exporting doses again in the near future? So a lot of that is, is, is uh, up in the air, and we will see. Um, that's why there's been so much discussion and so much interest in could your second dose be from a different yeah. manufacturer. And we don't have data on that. We will have some data actually probably later today, if not tomorrow, uh, from this uh, Oxford study in the UK called Comcop, which is looking specifically at this issue. If your first, first dose is AstraZeneca and your second dose is Pfizer, or the inverse of that, or if both doses are the same, does it make a difference? Most people think that it probably won't. And so once the results of those that, of that study comes out, if it indeed proves that there's no difference, I think a lot of people can, with some degree of confidence, get their second dose as a Pfizer dose, even if they got AstraZeneca the first time around. See, now the question is, they're, they're different mechanisms, correct? Because Pfizer and Moderna yeah. operate one way. AstraZeneca has another response in the body to create the immunity. Um, so we don't. Could they work together scientifically? Is there a possibility that the second dose coming from Pfizer or Moderna will be just as effective as the AstraZeneca second dose? Yes, it will. Because if you think about it, the reason, the way in that they're different is they're different delivery mechanisms. But they're doing the same fundamental thing: is they're showing you a piece of the genetic code for the spike protein, and then once you make spike protein, you then make antibodies against that. 
So they're both accomplishing the same thing, which is to make, get your body to make antibodies against the spike protein. It's simply the mechanism by which they get that genetic code into your body. So, again, it seems reasonable to assume that using them together, this mix and match strategy, should be okay. Now, we okay. obviously want proof because, you know, again, a lot of things make sense in theory and don't work out in practice, but there are good reasons to think that this should work. Um, what about, okay, let's say that doesn't work. It looks like we're going to have enough vaccines that, like, for example, I got my AstraZeneca first dose about three weeks ago now, and I was mm-hmm. told I need to book my second dose by August 10th. That's my drop dead mm-hmm. date. Could we get to a point where they say, okay, mixing and matching maybe isn't the most effective method, but we have so much Pfizer and Moderna now, we'll just start you over and you'll end up getting two doses of that? Is that a possibility? It is a possibility, but it's almost the same issue, right? It's, it's unclear. It's not as if you get a reset if you start with a new type of vaccine. If you're going to give people Pfizer anyways, usually two doses of, of any vaccine are going to be enough to boost your immune system. The, the final, the important thing is going to be, do you have adequate antibody levels? Now, testing everybody's antibody levels before vaccination would be logistically quite complicated mm-hmm. and very expensive. But I don't think that we would reset the vaccination schedule because it's not as if there's something magical about getting two doses at a prescribed interval. The point is, you get a vaccine, you get a boost in your antibody level, you get a second vaccine as a booster to boost them even further and for longer. So if you're going to get two different doses anyways from AstraZeneca and then from Pfizer, it's unclear that you would need a third dose to be your second Pfizer dose. Now, again, this whole thing is predicated on the idea that the variants of concern are not going to change that much. If come the beginning of 2022, we're seeing a lot more variants, we may all need a booster for circulating variants if they end up being very different from right. the original strain. So that's the that's the one caveat to this entire conversation. Right, exactly. We've been told that several times. So we may end up mixing and matching down the road anyhow. Um, a question from one of our listeners, and, I, and I'll ask it because uh, I think it's, I'm hearing it a lot and I, and I understand the sentiment. Um, question for the doctor. I feel tricked and disappointed that I let myself be vaccine shamed into taking AstraZeneca and I really wanted to wait. There's no way I'll take a second dose of AstraZeneca. Now, if mixing doesn't become approved or allowed, what type of protection might I expect if I just stay at a single dose of AstraZeneca? Um, So with a single dose of any vaccine, not just AstraZeneca, you'll have some protection, but not total protection. The actual number is a little bit difficult to estimate. In fact, I was just writing a piece on this uh, recently, but... Here's the thing. One dose of vaccine is still pretty protective. And when you look at what's happening in Canada, the Public Health Agency of Canada has released data showing that only a tiny fraction of infections are in people who got one dose. Only something like 1.8% of people got infected two weeks after their first dose. So you have good protection, but not complete protection. And so there is some degree of risk. So while it may not make a difference for you as an individual, if you can imagine an entire population that only got one dose, they won't have long-lasting immunity, and the potential of new waves of infections remains uh, remains a possibility. Um, we still don't know how long the immunity may last, right? One of the listeners asked me, well, what's the drop-dead date? Yeah, that's a good point. I say drop-dead date. That's the date that the pharmacist told me I should get my second shot. That's the outside 16-week window. Um, but we don't know... If, if that 16-week window, we're doing it differently than other places. So it may last longer. It may, it may be shorter, right? We don't know exactly how that time frame is shaping up yet. 
Right, exactly. The way it was done in the studies was three to four weeks because that's the minimum interval. Before that, it wouldn't make a difference. We don't know what the outer edge of that interval is. Now, people chose three, four months. There was some experimental data, but and that's also how most vaccines are given. So people thought that that was a very reasonable thing to do, and that's, you know, fair enough. We don't know how far you could push that. I think most people would say that we probably don't want to push that far beyond the four-month window, that's starting to get a little bit long. And so you do want to get that booster in a reasonable period of time. The problem is, is that we've been limited by vaccine supply throughout this entire uh, run of this uh, pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And I guess for me, Doc, I'm just looking for a little reassurance that I, I, I did the good thing and I went and got the AstraZeneca and I'm just telling myself, you know what, they'll have it sorted out by August. There'll be some sort of strategy in place because it's just as important to them as it is to me, right? I mean, is that a good strategy or should people be getting more and more concerned about where we are? No, I don't think we should be getting concerned because here's the thing. If you got the AstraZeneca dose and you had no side effects from it or no serious side effects from it, you're fine, right? This issue of blood clots happens soon after the vaccine. So if you're more than a few weeks out, if you're more than four weeks out from the vaccine and you didn't get a blood clot, you're probably not going to get one. Even if you got a second dose of AstraZeneca, it's very, very unlikely that you would get a blood clot after the second dose if you didn't get after the first. The AstraZeneca vaccine works. The British have been using it, and their cases are way, way down. So it's a vaccine that works. It's just that it's potentially problematic when we talk about the younger age groups because of this very, very small risk of blood clots. But the main issue now is, again, as it's always been an issue of supply. So if we don't have vaccines available, we can't give them to people. Doc, great information. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Take care. Stay safe. You too. That's Dr. Christopher Labos, who is a cardiologist and epidemiologist in Montreal, uh, an associate at McGill University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.